Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. This is also episode 7.0 in my Black Sabbath series, Arc Sabbath. So, uh, last time I spoke to you, we discussed the Tony Martin album, The Eternal Idol. That episode only covered off one album. In this episode, I'll be covering off the albums that followed, which are The Headless Cross, released in 1989, and Tear, released in 1990, both of which also featured Tony Martin as a singer. It's heartening to see that many of you are still sticking around into the Tony Martin era. The download stats have remained fairly steady throughout the series on Black Sabbath, so it's good to know that people aren't dropping off after the Aussie or the Dio albums, and they're sticking around to hear the whole story, the entire story of Black Sabbath, which is what I always intended to tell with this series, this sub-series within Feckin' Metal, and it's great to see you all joining along with me. Uh, on that note, if you do want to contact me about Feckin' Metal, you have opinions on Feckin' Metal or Arc Sabbath or anything else that I've discussed on the podcast, please contact me. It's at Feckin' Metal Cast on Twitter. It's Feckin' Metal at gmail.com. And you can contact me also on the Feck and Check and Podcast Network page on Facebook. It's hard to find the time these days to uh, to record these intros and these links within the episodes, uh, be it barking dogs, barking neighbours. To be honest, it's driving me barking mad, if you'll allow us to be frank here at the Feck and Metal podcast. A subtle Westlife reference there. And for anyone who got that, please feel free to award yourself 10 Feck and Metal points. One thing I'd like to mention as well is there's an anniversary coming up for me. Uh, Feckin' Metal started almost a year ago on the 11th of September 2020. Obviously, the anniversary of that will be the 11th of September 2021. I'm not going to celebrate the anniversary of the podcast on that date for very obvious reasons, but maybe a week later, I'm planning on doing a special episode. Uh, I haven't quite decided on the format. I do have one idea in mind. I will mull it over with myself and others, and I will uh, be announcing that soon on Twitter, at Feck and Metalcast, about what I intend to do for that episode. But it's definitely going to be a completely different formatted episode than I've done before, so keep your eyes peeled for that, keep your ears peeled, or you can keep any sixth senses you might have peeled as well. Now, I realised that while we did discuss Glenn Hughes's tenure in Black Sabbath and we moved into the Tony Martin era, I didn't narrate any of this with a passage from any of the books that I've been referencing recently. So I'd like to just briefly delve into the book of Mormon. No, uh, the book of Popoff, Martin Popoff's book, Black Sabbath in the 80s and 90s, uh, Born Again, it's called. And I would like to read a section about Glenn Hughes's exit from the band and Tony Martin's intro, intro? Tony Martin's introduction to the band, or when he joined the band. I'm not sure what the word for that is, sorry. Um, so here's a section about Glenn Hughes leaving Black Sabbath after the disastrous tour in 1986. So Martin picks up the story here. It all fell apart on tour. Glenn admits to stinking up the joint and then getting tossed after five mostly bad shows. And here's Glenn. The performance on tour was abysmal for myself. I had an ailment due to the fact that I had a disagreement with somebody. I got into a fight that I didn't really provoke and then subsequently ended up in the hospital and damaged my throat. I think it's been documented in a few books. In fact, Glenn was hit by a Sabbath employee, production manager John Downing, who was only trying to restrain a loaded Hughes and corral him into his hotel room. But it was quite a blow, resulting in a chunk of Glenn's eye socket lodging in his sinuses and all manner of facial bruising, requiring Glenn to cake on makeup for photo shoots and well into the days after he was long gone from the band. John Dowling would eventually disappear for good, having boarded a ferry 
gotten in a flight and not shown up among the disembarking passengers at the end of the journey. Somebody asked me, is there anything in your life you would like to erase, opined Glenn years later, clean and sober, born again Christian, and father of a spate of ripping solo albums that have had all the critics calling him, once again, the voice of rock. It's those five concerts. I lost my voice even before we did the first one. There was a bunch of blood that was caught in my throat from a punch in the nose, in the socket, so I had to have a throat scrape so I couldn't sing. Can you imagine going on in front of 15,000 people knowing that you can't sing and you can't cancel? We should have cancelled, but lucky for myself, Ray Gillen stepped in and finished the tour. And I was so glad for that. I was really grateful because it was really embarrassing for me. Drugs and drink were a big part of it as well. But add to that the last minute change from Seven Star being a solo album to a Sabbath album and you've got a psychological psych out as well. Then there was the fact that Glenn had packed on some flab. Compounded with the fact that with Spitz as bass player, Glenn didn't have his bass guitar to hide behind. Oh yes, and he couldn't remember the words to the old Sabbath catalogue either. I didn't feel comfortable in the Sabbath format, simply because I don't believe in the devil. I don't believe in singing about the devil. You know, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's a well-known fact that I am one of the greatest rock singers on the planet, which is really great for people to say that when they say it. But I really believe that Black Sabbath songs belong to Ozzy Osbourne. I think that those songs are really his songs and only he can sing them. There's only one guy like Ozzy and he sings them in his way. And for anyone else to sing them just sounds really weird. I didn't feel comfortable singing those songs. Right, so that covers off Glenn's exit from Black Sabbath. I did cover off Ray Gillen's brief tenure with the band as well. But as we have already covered in full one Tony Martin album and we're about to cover two more, I feel I should provide some context on his hiring as well. So here is... Another section from Martin Popoff's book, Born Again, Black Sabbath in the 1980s and 90s. And this is how Tony Martin became a member of Black Sabbath, according to Tony Iommi. My best friend from school managed Tony Martin in his band, says Iommi, referring to Albert Chapman. When we were looking for a new singer, Albert said to me, why don't you try Tony? And I said, well, he's with one of your bands. And he said, well, he is, but he could do with a break. Why don't you just try him? So I did. I liked what he was doing. I really liked his voice. And we've done quite a few albums together, but it's hard to bring in a new singer again. It's always been very difficult under the Sabbath name. You can understand that people won't accept something just like that. Sabbathers being a particularly hard breed of fans. And if you bring somebody in and they don't like it, uh, well, my answer to that was I brought people in just to keep it going. If you change and people say, why do you have so many people in? Well, in recent years, if you can't make somebody stay in the band, if somebody leaves, you've got to replace them. Tony Martin explains the circumstances around his hiring from his own point of view. You have to understand that in Birmingham, it ain't that big and everybody knows everybody else. So the manager I had at the time knew Black Sabbath because they all went to school together and they even worked in some of the same places when they were growing up and they'd been lifelong friends. And in fact, he worked with the band as tour manager when Ozzy was in the band and they'd lost contact for a few years and then he got into management and I met him and then he got me the gig. So it's down to my manager really. Which was kind of weird, because he kind of did himself out of a job almost, because they had their own management, and they didn't allow anyone else to make management decisions, because they already had management. So he kind of sat twiddling his thumbs for a while, not being able to really get into it. Before Sabbath, I was mainly in smaller bands, doing compilation albums and stuff like that. I really hadn't gotten into the industry full until the Sabbath thing. We had deals and serious tracks were released on, like I said, compilation albums, but mainly I worked with smaller bands, kids' bands, because I was a kid then. I really wasn't that old. The guys in Sabbath were much older than me. I was actually a guitarist before I was even a singer. 
I started playing guitar when I was seven years old and I was a guitarist right up until I was 28 or something like that. And then some idiot told me that I had a good voice and I believed him. So I put down the guitar and I picked up the microphone. Up until that point, I was always a guitar player and I always did backing vocals. I never did lead vocals. I played in all sorts of bands and did backing vocals, but I never really thought about it before until somebody said, hey, you can sing. I said, no, stop. The real test of it all, after doing a few bands on lead vocals, was with Black Sabbath. Shit, throw Tony in the deep end. It all developed from there, really. So there you have it. That's Tony Martin's take on how he ended up in Black Sabbath. A bit of his own backstory there as well. So thanks again to Martin Popoff and his book, Black Sabbath in the 80s and 90s, for filling in the gaps there in the story and uh, bringing us up to the present day. Well, no, it's not the present day, really. Bringing us up to the current point where we're at, where Black Sabbath are about to release Headless Cross. So, um, on this episode, it's the same format as the previous episode. You'll hear from many different people. Uh, you'll mainly hear from Alejandra and Philip, but I have a few comments from others as well. And on that note, before we get started into the meat of this episode, here's a tidbit from Joe Sigler about the album The Eternal Idol that I didn't include in the last episode. That's a weird album because I like... I, I, I think the Eternal Idol album is one of the most solid albums from front to back that Sabbath has ever done. But it's, it's out there publicly with Tony Martin singing Ray Gillen's vocal lines. I mean, Ray Gillen still technically appears on the final version of the album. Not, not that demo that was released with him, but the version with Tony Martin. Ray Gillen is there on the album in one little tiny bit. The song Nightmare. Um, there's laughing about three quarters of the way through the song. That's Ray Gillen and not Tony Martin doing that. So lots of great music on the Eternal Idol, as I discussed with my guests on the last episode. And I usually put in clips, highlights of my favorite songs from an album uh, on the following episode after having discussed it on the previous one. But this time I'm going to try something a little bit different. So here's a little musical collage I've created for you, featuring clips from the entire album, The Eternal Idol.
Alright, yeah, so that was just something a little bit different, uh, trying to mix up the format here on Feckin' Metal. But, like many of my guests said last time, I would strongly advise you give this album a listen if you've never heard it before. It's actually one of the only, it is the only, sorry, Tony Martin album that's available on streaming services. Uh, none of the following albums are available, so that's Headless Cross Tear. Uh, cross Purposes are Forbidden. Unfortunately, they seem to be out of print or out of license or something like that. I'm never sure of the exact specifics on it, but Tony Martin uh, albums are available to find elsewhere, I'll say, but they're not really on streaming services. But The Eternal Idol is, so if you like what you heard, give that a listen there on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever you stream stuff on. So, let's start talking about these albums. Um, let's hear from Rai about The Headless Cross. The Headless Cross is probably my least favorite Sabbath album, just because it's out of my wheelhouse. Yeah, there's no, I can't even really think of a standout track that I like. I don't I love Cozy Powell. I love like uh, Rainbow Rising and that stuff, what he did on there. But I find his drum tone is just ugh, it's yucky. Again, rhythm section wise, they had a session bassist in there. Was some of the worst bass tracks on the Sabbath album is Headless Cross. It, he uses like fretless bass and stuff. And it just sounds like um, there's no presence. There's no, there's no uh, growl to the songs, um, which is missing for me. I'm trying to think. Let's do a positive spin, though. I mean, it's my least favorite of the Sabbath catalog, but, you know, I do podcasts called Sabbath Bloody Podcasts, so I obviously enjoy all Sabbath. I celebrate all Sabbath. But, yeah, with uh, the Headless Cross, it, it's a little on the nose, maybe. Uh, I kind of like the way that they went with Tear. Like, uh, it's on the nose with Viking stuff, but at least it's different. You know, it's not predictable. Um, that Viking stuff wasn't really huge at the time the Tear came out either, so it's kind of unique in that sense i think let's just skip over headless cross so i don't i don't make too negative i do i do enjoy aspects of it i asked philip when he first got the album headless cross much later yeah yeah, yeah much later that 1989 again i made some notes and if we look at 1989 this must have been really hard for an album like this this i mean death metal was this was almost a birth of death metal. So anyone looking for extreme and, and, and intense metal was not listening to the Headless Cross, even though it's a pretty dark album, uh, aesthetically and musically. And then in 1989 is also when, you know, we had the first sounds from Seattle coming out and just so much was happening that I think, sadly, Black Sabbath were more or less ignored. Um, but I do really like this album. I think it's almost my favorite of the Tony Martin era. And what about the sound of Headless Cross as an album? Oof, it's a it's a pretty dark album, both musically and lyrically. It's 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 kind of gloomy, and it has this you know classic metal feel as well. Um, it does have quite a bit of, of of 80s contemporary metal vibe, which probably would have put me off if I had heard this in the early 90s. Again, as I said, um, I was I was really into Tony Martin's voice. Um, I really liked it. Um, I think one of the things that most people mention about this album is the the lyrics, right, and the fact that uh, that they are quite satanic, if you wish. I mean, they're not really satanic in the sense that. I don't know. I don't find them as I don't find them creepy or anything. I mean, there's a lot of mentions of Satan and. Uh, and, and of different scenarios, but it doesn't give me that that idea. Maybe that it, it doesn't have that atmosphere of like uh, of horror or, or something like that. You know uh, what I'm saying? It's just, I mean, it talks about the devil, but the, when you listen to it, the music doesn't really probably match the 
the lyrics in in that sense it's not like the lyrics are in themselves satanic but uh the, to conjure the dark imagery that he perhaps associated with black sabbath which again you know they chose that name so unfortunately that comes with it um even though they tried to kind of get rid of it their entire career there is that kind of a dark and gloomy undertone to all of it and so yeah i think i think definitely tony martin tried to put a little too much of that in here but i still enjoy it a lot they're very dark there's a lot of satan there's a lot of death and uh, i think that caused a bit of consternation afterwards with tony and um i remember reading this little bit where tony was like what's with all the satan and and, and dark stuff well iomi saying this to the other tony and he's like well you're black sabbath i was just trying to kind of fit in here and um, i don't think he really liked it and i think retrospectively that's why it appeals to a lot of metal fans now because this one was actually quite dark um the story with the headless cross you know being a, a, an actual cross erected in a town near where tony martin lives it was a town itself okay and uh so there's some cool stories to pluck out of there and that's i think where where the lyrics get a little more interesting um because the singer actually wrote them mostly himself i mean i don't mind the the fact that it's it it, it mentions satan or lucifer or you know it, he probably it probably uses all the possible names uh, that that satan has in in the lyrics but um and i don't mind again you know one way or the other to me it's the same if he sings about satan or he sings about odin or you know or tear it it's it doesn't make a difference it's, it's all mythology to me um but i do prefer no but i do prefer um more subtle references that are more poetic you know like the angel that fell from the sky for example or you know things like that uh, the, uh, more subtle references again just because yeah it's the easy way right just to say satan boo okay uh <laughs> No, I mean, maybe he thought, oh, yeah, now I have to write songs for Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath are considered to be one of these Satan worshipping bands. So I, I better, you know, deliver what, what fans are, are expecting. So that, that was it. And even Tony Ayomi was a bit surprised or, or he, he told him, well, what a, what's with all the Satan, <laughs> you know, references? To be honest, I don't, yeah, I don't think I've ever listened to an album that, well, I mean, <laughs> that, that uh, referenced... Uh, the devil uh, as uh, as directly as as this one um i don't tend to to listen to to those kinds of bands so so yeah probably this is it um i mean i think uh, my parents would have been uh, they wouldn't have known because they they don't speak english so they wouldn't know from the lyrics and uh, they would have only known from from the cover maybe which is why i told you right when i when i actually got ozzy osbourne's um, ultimate scene for example <laughs> uh, my mother was horrified not that you know she didn't say anything i mean i turned out all right in the end <laughs> and i was a i was a pretty good kid i wasn't out doing strange things or you know uh uh, just listening, just listening to the music, <laughs> exactly. Is it possible that Black Sabbath were influenced by the power metal that came about in the 80s, that they probably had in turn influenced themselves? Definitely, definitely. I would, I would think so. 
I mean, to, to stay relevant, you kind of have to uh, look and see and listen what's going on. Uh, you can't just live in a vacuum. And um, I certainly would say they were influenced by that. And I'm sure, you know, Tony Martin brought his own influences as well. And he probably came from a bit of a different background. Okay, so moving into the album itself, what about the song Headless Cross? I love the song, yes. Again, one, one thing that I like about this album in general is, is Martin's vocals, because I think he does something that he, he doesn't really do in other, you know, this kind of, of really uh, um, screams in, 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 in really high, uh, high-pitched, yeah, like really high-pitched screams, for example, uh, are something that I love about this record, and he doesn't really do that in, in many of the others. Well, he, I think he's actually said that he realized probably after after having done this record that that was something that was difficult to reproduce live and so maybe he tried to make it easier for himself by by avoiding you know these kinds of of displays of, of vocal prowess that he couldn't reproduce himself uh but um but i love it i mean it's it's one of the things that i like uh the most about it and and as i said you know yeah the 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 whole lyrics of the song and in in this one right you know the um uh, are uh are very uh what do you say they 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 create an image in your mind right they're very descriptive uh, i think it's great it's it's dark lengthy it's kind of epic it's it's very epic metal uh, i think it's a fantastic opener and it it, it gets you you know excited for the next one, which I think is also a brilliant song. Uh, what you could say with these albums, uh, you know, whereas the riffing on, on, on early Sabbath was obviously very um, important for metal, but here you have a more mature Tony, the way he structures his songs, the way he writes the riffs, um, which the kind of the influence you can then hear later in some of the, the 90s doom bands uh, like Cathedral, you can really, you don't hear, you know, something like Iron Man in their sound, but you can definitely now draw parallels to some of this, you know, late 80s, early 90s Sabbath. So, yeah, I I, I like it, although I, I would say my favorite is probably the next song, Devil, Devil and Daughter. Um, I know, I, I, I you know, I, I know a lot of people mock all these lyrics and they say, yes, they are they're trying to be scary and, and devilish but in a very infantile way or they you know they um but again you know i i listen to the music and and i i i really like the music and, and don't I'm, I'm not really bothered by by the lyrics uh, really at all i read that some people think devil and daughter were written about don and sharon arden who knows if that's true <laughs> <laughs> no i haven't actually <laughs> <laughs> oh, seriously, she'll break any woman and take any man. <laughs> oh man, no, no, I this is the first time. This is the first time I hear it. So, yeah, again, you know, the I, I love Martin's vocals in that one. Uh, yes, the solo is incredible. Um, Again, you know, there's more nuanced references to the devil. I mean, of course, he says devil and daughter, but, you know, things like the master of hell, as I said, you know, an angel that fell from the sky would have been more, more subtle and maybe, yeah, maybe better. I like uh, Killing the Spirit World a lot. I think that's a really good track. The solo in there is absolutely killer. 
Um, I'm not sure about the lyrical themes, you know, talking about the spirit world for a, a, a guy from Birmingham. It's maybe a little funny, but um, I think it's a great song. It does have a bit of an 80s metal vibe to it. You know, you, I hear Little Europe, Def Leppard, that kind of thing. Um, and then Black Moon, I just think it has a killer chorus. It's not the best song, but but the chorus, every time it comes up, uh, I'm like, yes. And Nightwing's a good epic closer, bit of a ballad. So when Death Calls is one of those songs here in Deathless Cross, and there's a, a couple of them that I could totally hear Dio sing. And when Martin sings it, he totally does a lot of, you know, Dio-like uh things with his voice, um, Dioisms, if you wish, I've heard some people call them. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I can totally hear Dio sing, sing the song. Uh, um, I love, again, you know, the, the change of pace and when it gets faster, you know, the don't look into those sunken eyes, don't look. I, I, I love that, that, that section. I think it, it would have been great to, to hear Dio sing this song, I'm sure he could have taken it to the next level. So, overall thoughts on Headless Cross as an album? Yes, I think, you know, uh, aesthetically and musically, it's, it's, it's quite cohesive, considering how many people were involved. And uh, I like this one a lot, and I think any, any Sabbath fan should, should give it a fair shake. I asked Philip if it bothered him when people dismissed any Black Sabbath versions that were not fronted by Ronnie James Dio or Ozzy Osbourne. It used to, but I can separate now. I'm a little more mature, but it used to, um, especially people who only like Aussie Sabbath wouldn't give even Dio a fair shake. But it's it's a completely different sound. It's different aesthetic. I keep saying that word, but um, I can totally see why you would like one and not the other. I mean, I still get upset when people you know harp on the Blaze albums from Maiden and don't give them a fair try, but. It is what it is. It's it's not my place anymore to tell people what to like. I asked Philip to discuss Tear in broad terms and the heavy metal scene at the time. Yeah, it has some real highlights. Uh, 1990 again, very difficult. Priest, Pantera, Megadeth, Danzig were all ha- having huge albums. Slayer, all of that was going on. Um, hard to, to, to stand out, especially with the singer still, nobody knows. But um, this album has some real highlights. The Norse mythology stuff is kind of funny. Uh, you know, again, coming from some English dudes predating uh, 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 actually when it became massive in metal, where everybody suddenly uh, was having you know Thor's hammer and Odin on their on their covers and lyrics. And uh, I think uh, you know it worked. Those are some really cool cool tracks, especially those three: uh, Battle of Tear, Odin's Court, Valhalla. That's a good triptych there. Um, I think the Sabbath Stones is probably my favorite on here. Uh, yeah, great song, epic, and and you know they're using Sabbath in the title, so you're almost like, oh, is this some kind of Sabbath mythology we're getting here? Uh, I really enjoy that. I like the opener, Anno Mundi. It, this is overall a really great album. I don't think I like it as a whole as much as Headless Cross, but uh, it has some really really strong songs that outshadow, overshadow, uh, you know, a lot of the songs in the other albums. I mean, I would I would love to be able to travel back in time and see them on, in, in, during this era. What I'm hoping is, what well, would be nice if they do reissue this in the box set, if there would be some 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 live cuts like they do with the other uh, expanded reissues and maybe even some video. Because, you know, if we're honest and if we're looking at Tony Martin from a technical standpoint as a singer, 
he's probably the most versatile singer Sabbath ever had. He could do Dio, he could do Ozzy, and he could do this stuff. Whereas I wonder how Dio would sound on some of this Tony Martin era Sabbath. I definitely don't want to hear Ozzy trying this, but um, you know, he could do he could do all of the Sabbath, where you couldn't say that for the other singers. What about Ozzy Osbourne, the longest tenured singer in Black Sabbath, never singing anybody else's songs? Yeah, I don't think that was ever on the table. And I, I wouldn't see him, A, attempting it, B, succeeding in it, or C, even being able to get over his own ego and do it. Because, I mean, there was a lot of bad blood. Ozzy's ousting originally was not a happy one. So I'm sure he wants nothing to do with those other songs. Ozzy became almost a gimmick you know, the Prince of Darkness, Ozzy Osbourne, and he had Sharon at his side. And I'm sure Sharon had uh, something to say about that. Sharon didn't care for, for Dio after she had uh, introduced him because then she wanted Ozzy back in the band. And I'm sure Sharon didn't care much for Tony Martin. Um, so I don't see any way where she would even let Ozzy attempt those songs. And I don't think he could do them. What about Ronnie James Dio not really singing the previous singer's songs after he came back to the band? That is, of course... The people who came in after he left. That's Ian Gillen, Glenn Hughes, Tony Martin. I think Dio was probably a, a very proud man. <laughs> and he wouldn't have... One, I mean, he, he did sing some of the Aussie songs with uh, various uh, results. <laughs> with uh, different degrees of, of success, let's say. Um, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, do you think, it, yeah, it could have been some something about ego, maybe. I mean, how do we know it was all his decision? It could have been Ayomi's decision as well, you know? I don't know, maybe it was both of them. I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious that they have always favored the Aussie era over other eras, right, with other singers, and that they would continue. Again, you know, it, it could be also because they were trying to please the fans, you know, the plan, the, the, uh, the, the, the hardcore uh, Black Sabbath fans are all about Aussie and the Aussie era, they're Aussie worshippers, so they would have been expecting that. Uh, maybe the other records haven't been as successful, uh, they wouldn't have chosen songs from those records to to sing in, in subsequent, um, you know, uh, live concerts and they would have preferred, again, you know, there's always a limited number of songs that you can sing and they are always going to go back to the classics. So they're probably going to give, you know, room to the, to the war pigs and to the paranoids and to the, you know, and leave out other songs that were probably in albums that were less, um, popular, less accepted by the fans. Uh, I think it's the only, it's the only possible explanation. Uh, I know that Tony Martin. I know that Tony Martin uh, tried to reach out to to Dio or try to communicate with him in in some way, and, and probably Dio uh, Dio wouldn't give him the time of day. I think <laughs> poor Martin. I mean, he he seems like a really nice guy and. Uh, trying to be friends with everybody and probably in in this business this is not something that that can happen i kind of like the way that they went with tear like it's on the nose with viking stuff but at least it's different you know it's not predictable um that viking stuff wasn't really huge at the time the tear came out either so it's kind of unique in that sense i think but that's a huge thing in metal right like that's uh even like bathory has some of that vibe in it right like the more 
Norwegian, Norwegian metal. And I know that um, Iomi really locks into that uh, Scandinavian kind of vibes, even, uh, even though this is the only album that kind of does that, but uh, he very much is like connects with, with Sweden and stuff like that. I think they're, he, he's obviously worshiped there. Um, but I think he, one of his, one of his many wives was from there, I think, <laughs> or something. Uh, I know there's a connection. He lived there quite a bit and would, uh, yeah. And, and like I said earlier, this is kind of when Sabbath becomes more of a European outfit. Um, they're kind of catering to that maybe in a sense, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's formulated in a sense, but, um, they basically, yeah, the power metal kind of vibe, um, big in Germany, of course, like huge there. Like it's ridiculous how huge it is there. People in America probably think of it as like, you know, oh yeah, I get it. Yeah. You're big in Europe, but like you can make a living just, you can set up shop there if you, you've got the right vibes and, uh, the Tony Martin Sabbath does. <laughs> Is that where, I bet you that's where Martin lives now and we don't even know it. He's just over there just making a mint. <laughs> Again, like he doesn't have the character in his voice that I look for or would, would want to follow up on. But if I saw that, you know, Tony Martin's Headless Cross is playing in the pub down the street um, there with bells on, for sure. Some, some great songs. But once Murray gets in and Tear, I feel like the Martin era definitely does a little spike for me. I, I enjoy that album a lot. There's a couple of songs that I love the the Viking trilogy, as it's called. That's really cool. I mean, when they do something conceptual like that in the middle of the album, I actually would have liked to see a bit more of that threaded out because there are some outliers. Um, feels good to me was the signal. Not really into that a little too AOR. But that's part of music at that time. You can't shit on the whole thing for the and at least they just do it one song kind of thing. But you can tell it's a hit seeker. Um, doesn't really fit with the rest of the vibe of the album. Like I can't see somebody hearing that single and then wanting like this fucking Viking tablet in their <laughs> record collection. I actually have it on vinyl. Uh, I when I was in Dublin, I found it in the used bin for ten euros, and I was like, oh shit, people don't know what this is. That thing's worth like fifty at least. Might have been Spin Dizzy, and it was a new arrival thing. I don't think he labeled it properly, and I think even when I took it, he was like, "Oh yeah," and I was like, "Yeah, ten euros, lad." I was I was happy though, because that's you come over here. There's no way you're ever gonna find that. Okay, so here we go. To your, what I think is interesting about it is the curious release year, 1990, is almost in between worlds in the metal world. You know, the 80s are over. Uh, very much so, I think. They ended around 87, actually, stylistically. And the 90s started creeping in. And then it's just this completely unknown album. Sharon Osbourne has made a good attempt at hiding it. It was hidden from me for so long, really. Uh, like, I didn't understand, I didn't recognize this as an album until two, three years ago. It was slightly before Sabbath Bloody Podcast, but not long. And uh, it has a good length. It's 39.16. And I think it has a cool sound. I wanted to say that about Eternal Idol, that it la- I don't like the snare sound also. It's very, like, I'm usually an apologist for 80s type sounds, but that snare is very washy, like a, sh- a shower head in your face, with zero dynamics to it. And I think it got better on tier. Uh, I think it sounds more like a band on that one, uh, which I like. And just for tracks, I, I can only mention Anamundi, the opener, which I think is a great track. Because I've listened quite casually to it whilst looking for the vinyl, which is hard to find at a decent price. So most listened uh, Martin album is definitely still Eternal Idol. But I think this one, holistically, 
more intriguing. And then about that Norse thematic, uh, that's like a love-hate for me. You know, it can be captivating if it's done very well. I haven't looked into the lyrics, but the delivery of them makes me feel like doing that, unlike the delivery on Eternal Idol. And I think Eternal Idol, he's not so much to fault there, because you said it, he came in, right? He was kind of a replacement singer. He came in way late. Uh, things similar to Yannick Gers coming into Maiden mid-pre-production of No Prayer. He has no, no writing credits on it. And his style of playing is more traditional, more towards his solo sound more like Dave or Adrian on that one. So like, if you have that short span of time, maybe it's hard to bring forth your charisma, your character. So I think in that sense, two years better, three years later. And also it's just the appeal of a hidden album, I think. Just so hidden. Alejandra ponders the idea that Tear is a concept album. I have read somewhere that, you know, some people uh, call this a um, uh, concept album because of, well, because of the name of the album, Tear, and because of the name of some of the songs, you know, again, uh, what is it, the Battle of Tear and the, no, the Battle of Odin and uh, um, Valhalla, of course, and uh but I would call it more maybe a concept album in the sense that it, yeah, it references different religions actually, right? I mean, it, it, it like the this this opening track, Anomundi, Jerusalem. Um, yeah, maybe it could have. I mean, you you could not call it a concept album. Of course, they have uh, uh, discredited this this theory. Um, but there is a let's say there is a a thread that that maybe joins uh, all the different uh, songs uh, in the album together i mean i'm, I'm just thinking about this uh, off the top of my head like you know just because there are uh, a few names of songs yes and, and and lyrics related to that but yeah don't don't quote me on it <laughs> so what about the rest of the tear album which songs stand out yeah i i i really like uh, i really like those three opening songs, Anamundi, The Lawmaker, Jerusalem. Um, I have mixed feelings about Sabbath Stones as the, the verses, again, are very reminiscent of, of traditional Sabbath that I'm not uh, a fan of. But the... <laughs> uh but the 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 chorus is 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 magnificent i i i love the song as it progresses you know it um i don't like the i don't like the verses but i love the chorus and uh yeah receiver of light i love that i love that uh the chorus really is really strong um again yeah yeah this is a pretty good album i mean it's a pretty pretty strong album i i i put it eternal i would put Eternal Idol as my second favorite, Headless Cross being the first, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, this would definitely be the, the third one up there. Um, yeah. And then Odin Scored, which is quite a short song. I mean, it, it blends, right, completely with the Valhalla. I mean, it's it's imperceptible. Like the the change between between them is, is really imperceptible. It, yeah, I, I wouldn't even consider them... Uh, three separate songs i mean it's, it's almost as if it's a one song with like three parts right but yeah i mean they they all they are all connected so intrinsically that it's it's difficult to to separate them and you would you wouldn't certainly say oh i'm gonna listen to Odin's chord <laughs> by itself right you you wouldn't listen to them uh separately either so they they are uh, a unit in, in my opinion 
But what about that single, Feels Good To Me? Yeah, um, again, you know, this is, is this probably like the wasting love of Black Sabbath? <laughs> it's better than wasting love. I mean, I like it. I, I like the song. Uh, I know that they have said they just put it there because it was to be released as a single and probably, I don't know, maybe that's the thing that all the bands were doing, you know, throwing in a ballad and and all that. I. I would take it over a lot of the early Aussie stuff, if you ask me. <laughs> yes, I know that's controversial, but yeah. <laughs> Am I going to get a lot of hate DMs now? <laughs> Feels good to me. I prohibit you from, yeah, I prohibit you from playing that, that bit of me singing the song. <laughs> So yeah, it, it does feel like a song that is out of place in, in this in this record. I mean, if you if you come to think of it, if you come to think of uh, uh, coherence, uh, yeah, definitely. But I wouldn't say it is. Uh, I don't know. Uh, again, you know, uh, I suppose from from the perspective of uh, a, a Sabbath fan, it is probably something to be embarrassed about. And I think even <laughs> some of the members of the band have have said something in this regard, but it's okay. Philip provides his reflections on Headless Cross and Tear and that whole period of Black Sabbath history. But, and I think especially here, the Tony Martin era is something that fans of traditional heavy metal can discover retrospectively and really, really get into. I mean, there's a lot to discover. There's five albums that you suddenly, oh, it's a lot of material and a lot of, uh, you know, fun listening to do. Um, it's not like Sabbath ever really sold out or got extremely commercial. I mean, for me, like for me personally, it's bands like Metallica that I completely abandoned when they, you know, cut their hair and put on makeup because uh, I was I was there for the early thrash. You know, I, I could not deal with with where they went. Um, and so I understand how some people just can completely, you know, walk away and not be interested. And that's perfectly fine. I, I, I would urge anyone who's really into into traditional sounding metal to get to give these Tony Martin albums a fair shake. I think they've aged okay, even though they're dated. They sound like their time, which is also part of the charm. Especially Headless Cross and Tear. Uh, those two I've been actually listening to quite a lot. So I, I, I'm excited for these to get reissued if they do. They're kind of hard to find. You can find them. The CD's expensive. The vinyl, I don't think, is really affordable, if they were even issued on vinyl. IRS was a strange label for Sabbath to be on. Um, I think Tony kind of got talked into it. I mean, this label was more REM, uh, those kinds of bands, uh, more in the alternative. And they, maybe they thought that could work. Unfortunately, it didn't really. I doubt they knew how to push or, or present Black Sabbath. These albums would have been better on one of the 90s metal labels, like, I don't know, Century Media, Nuclear Blast, would have probably given them a much better push. All right, so that's the two Tony Martin albums, Headless Cross and Tear in the Bag. Next in line is the reunion with Ronnie James Dio in 1991-1992, which led to the release of the album Dehumanizer and a tour featuring Ronnie James Dio for the first time in 11 years, I think. Um, So it's a very interesting time in Black Sabbath because... 
they ditched Tony Martin, they brought Dio back, everybody thought everything was going really well, and then we all know that that fell apart as well, again, uh, with the return of Ozzy Osbourne. So, we enter into a really interesting period in Black Sabbath, where the original Black Sabbath lineup ends up um, reuniting again as well, um, but that is not to overlook the excellent album The Humanizer. We'll be speaking about that the next time I speak to you. That's going to do it for this episode of Feckin' Metal. As I said, keep your eyes out for an anniversary special of Feckin' Metal. I'll be releasing those details on Twitter in uh, due course. Uh, and that's at, at Feckin' Metal Cast. And I'll also have a couple of other episodes coming up as well, which will be unrelated to the arc. I will sprinkle them in between the arc episodes as I've done in the past. That's going to do it for me. So I will speak to you next time. Bye.